Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. You are listening to New Books in Religion, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt, and today I am pleased to talk about a new book published by Westminster John Knox Press 2021, The Story of Religion in America, an introduction written by James P. Byrd and James Hudnut Boimler. I am pleased to be with them today talk about this uh, wonderful new book, which presents a broad scope of the story of religion in the American colonies and the United States. This text, while focusing on certain central narratives, including the long shadow of Puritanism and the competition between revival and reason, the defining role of racial and ethnic diversity, this book tells the story of American religion in all its historical and moral complexity. To appeal to its broad range of readers, this text includes charts, timelines, suggestions for primary source documentation that will lead readers into deeper engagement with material. Unlike similar history books, the story of America, uh, uh, the story of religion in America, plays careful attention to the balancing of the story of Christian, Christianity with the central contributions of other religions. So, James and Jim, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast to talk about this new book. Great to be here. Great to be here. Great. So first uh, question is just a bit about you both and your educational background. So James, first, can you tell me uh, where you're coming from academically? Yeah. um, So I, um, first of all, it's great to be here. Uh, I come from North Carolina, and uh, I was uh, educated at Duke Divinity School for my Master of Divinity. Then I came to Vanderbilt for my PhD, and um, there studied with uh, various scholars in American religion. Great. Jim? And I, I actually went to Union Theological Seminary for my Master's of Divinity, uh, because they had the most church historians. I really knew what I wanted to do, and I was fortunate enough to work with uh, Robert Handy and James Melville Washington as Americanists and uh, continue that uh, down at Princeton University with John Wilson and Al Rabateau. Fantastic. Thank you. I, I should have also mentioned at the beginning that both uh, James Byrd and Jim Hudnut Boimler are professors at Vanderbilt Divinity School uh, and also at Vanderbilt University. Uh, so you are both colleagues, you both have background in religious history, but you both have different focuses in this history. James, I'll start with you first. Why did you both decide to write this book and how did you go about writing it? Yeah. Well, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, one was we were teaching a course called Global Christianities um, too, which covers a good bit of American history in it. And in teaching that over the years, and before that, we taught another course in American religious history. And especially in co-teaching, we recognized that there really wasn't a text that 
we felt was sufficient. Um, so we thought, why, why don't we just write one? And uh, we worked off of various sources, primary sources and secondary studies. And um, we recognized that that we could really fit in this field uh, and this space and contribute something. And one of the things that this book does is that it is a narrative and in a narrative form, it takes history seriously. Uh, we have recognized some wonderful histories of religion in America that focus more specifically on religious traditions and themes, but don't always focus on the history. So we wanted to prevent something that took the historical context very seriously in a narrative format. And it just so happened that our different focuses complemented one another. Uh, Jim does a lot of work with later stuff, post-Civil War. I do a lot of work with up to the Civil War and have published on the Civil War and before that. So we complemented each other really well in our teaching and our writing, and and we en- enjoyed the process very much. Fantastic. So, Jim, uh, there are many new books, it seems, every year on histories of American religion. In fact, just, I believe, a year or two ago, Thomas Kidd, one of the, the preeminent evangelical historians in America, wrote a book on American religious history. What is the intended audience for this book, both scholarly and with regards to faith, confession, etc.? Well, when uh, Westminster John Knox came to us, they said, uh, uh, we have studied all the college courses, the um, uh, colleges and universities that we sell books to. And there's New Testament, there's world religions, there's uh, religion in America, there's uh, Old, Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. And I think there was one uh, Christian ethics. And we have a good selling book in every um, in every lane except American religious history. And so they they asked us to pitch towards uh, undergraduate college readers. And one of the things that we did that that informed the narrative structure was to tell history in a parallel line to students who had probably taken it in like AP U.S. history in high school. So how do we tell the story of religion in relation to the uh, political history, the race, ethnicity, economics, uh, all the kinds of uh, geographical developments that happen, you know, the opening of the West and what have you, uh, and pay greater attention in this volume to uh, indigenous people uh, in, and uh, to the Atlantic world and let it unfold in terms of the uh, contemporary interests that most of the uh, good narrative uh, short books that are looking at one focus have taken in recent years. The existing uh, textbook market uh, has a lot of books that began in the 1950s in what we might call consensus history. And without, uh, and some of the ones in the 80s uh, began to look at groups, but it was like a European bus tour. Um, if it's Thursday, it must be Croatia. If it's Wednesday, it must be Lutherans. And so what we tried to do was to bring it together with the sort of history that you sort of learned in high school and the religious history that nobody taught you in high school, particularly in pu- American public high schools. Mm-hmm. So we are at a, I think, critical juncture in American history where religion is on a noticeable decline in participation, in even in rhetoric and discourse and affiliation. So I'll start with you, James, first, and then Jim, because I know you study this particularly. Why is religion important to America? Like, why is there a need for a whole textbook just on religion, which fewer and fewer people seem to find relevant to their everyday lives today? That's a good question. I think there are a couple of reasons for it. One is religion is still so much a part of the past uh, structure of the nation. So for instance, uh, recent Supreme Court decisions have 
reflected religion specifically uh, and religious contexts in those decisions. Um, there are articles out that talk about how religion is so important to some of those conversations and perhaps inappropriately so. But be that as it may, the nation has been structured in large part through religious leaders and religious ideas have had a prominent place. I mean, civil religion itself, however we define it, has been consistently prominent and important and formative uh, in the way we think about public life, not just public religion, but public life itself. Uh, we only have to look at ceremonies uh, to like presidential inaugurals to, to look at, the, to see things like that and, and evidence of that. So for one thing, then religion has been important to the past, to the structure of the nation itself. And when we look at our present, you know, we all, we obviously have to consider our past and how we got there. The other side of it is, uh, while religion is not as prominent as it once was, that doesn't mean that people have no longer a concern for the sacred or no longer a concern for the meaning of life, the meaning of existence, uh, religious questions, questions of ultimate concern, to quote Paul Tillich from another generation there. Um, so we're still thinking about ultimate issues uh, and, and doing so in the context of our everyday lives. So I think part of what we try to do in this book is not say just talk about the religious ideas, although they're important, but to talk about them in context. You know, to say, yeah, evangelicalism grew, but it didn't just grow in a vacuum, in a test tube. It grew in response to everyday social, economic, political, cultural issues and pressing dilemmas that people were facing. And those helped to shape what was happening in the religious space. Jim? Sure. One one of the things, as you know, uh, that I've worked on in the past is the future of the mainline Protestant tradition that was more than half of every adult in America in 1958 belonged to one of uh, just seven uh, old line denominations with the uh, Methodists and disciples of the early 19th century representing um Oh, the most recent groups. Everybody else came from Europe uh, or the uh, British Isles. And that was our sort of uh, culture, the 900-pound gorilla. We're not there anymore. What I find interesting and would add to what my colleague has said is that uh, uh, people continue to have strong ideas in America about where we go when we die, the purpose of uh, life, what an ethical life uh, consists of. And that leads us with what an ethical life consists of uh, to the heart of sort of contemporary uh, uh, problematics in in the religious cultural interface where younger generations don't want to have uh, successively. The younger you are, the less likely it is you'll be uh, in a church on Sunday. But some of the reasons that people uh, younger people don't want to be in a church has to do with a sense of uh, uh, maybe these places are uh, hypocritical. And I'm going to channel my energies into uh, something that's very much like what an old style church would have done in terms of the politics of uh, inclusion. Uh, used to be that the, your church uh, told you to love everybody and all your neighbors uh, now we have alternatives to that. And we will just have to see where all that settles out. We're historians. We tell uh, the story looking um, uh, towards the past. But I take the chap take took the last chapter, and so I'm uh, eager to see how uh, it unfolds. And I suspect we haven't seen the last of American religion uh, yet. Thank you. So one of the core, it seems, conflicts or dialectics in American religious history, which I mentioned in the beginning prologue, is between revival and reason. We could also may talk about this in another way. Uh, those who are committed to doctrine and those who are more committed to a popular, bottom-up, scripture-based 
religiosity. So, so again, starting with, with you, James, and then Jim first, where does this distinction between book learning and kind of this, this revival tradition come from? And then to you, Jim, how does that continue uh, over the past 150 years to present day? You know, some of these different uh, ideas about reason and revelation, revival and, um, and doctrine have been perennial issues. I mean, they've been issues in the history of Christianity throughout. And these tensions have just, you know, been put into a different context in the United States. One of the remarkable transitions that we note uh, happened during the Enlightenment period, the, eight, the 18th century specifically, you know, the 1700s, when people thought that they were in an enlightened era, era and they felt like that they were getting past some of the, the nearsightedness of the past and some of the over-dogmatism of the past. But one of the interesting things about that is that the Enlightenment developed at the same time as evangelicalism. So revival, piety, and Enlightenment rationalism played off each other quite nicely because both sides of that, they seem to be opposites, but both sides had a lot of things in common. I mean, for one thing, a religious experience, you know, human experience, both of them took experience and how we know very seriously. How do we know that we really have an authentic religious experience? You know, how do we know about our universe? These questions tied together really well. Um, so that's just one of those ways in which when we see things in history that seem to be opposites, if we look at them from a broader broader perspective, look at the cultural issues going on, the social issues going on, as well as the intellectual issues, we see that they have a lot in common, quite uh, incisively and, and sometimes in formative ways, you know, so they shape what's going to happen later. And I think that's what happens. I mean, it's no accident that evangelicalism became so prominent in the United States as compared to many other nations, because it tied together quite well with Republican political ideology and with Enlightenment rationalism in some specific ways. And that's just one example uh, of that uh, tension that seems to have produced, uh, in effect, more and more religious thought and more religious movements even. Yeah. Jim? I think I'd, I'd add to that um, that the uh, in the last 150 years, uh, we've seen that play out in, in some different ways. Uh, there are these high moments of theology. Uh, you think of Reinhold Niebuhr, John Courtney Murray, and and uh, Paul Tillich uh, in the 1950s, and and people, uh, you know, learned people and uh, people with no more than a high school education reading their books. Uh, we're not in that moment now, but we might be again. Uh, there there are these times of a great interest in uh, a well-versed but accessible version of sort of high religious um, ideas uh, that make sense once again of um, scripture and history and, and tradition. Uh, the other story, though, is, is pragmatism, you know, a way to make a uh, make a sense of a maybe less theorized, more practiced and more experienced to use uh, Professor Bird's uh, terms, uh, sense of religion and life. Uh, so getting involved in, in, uh, in the early uh, 19th century in uh, one of the benevolent societies in the late uh, 19th century in the social gospel, uh, in the 20th century in the civil rights movement. Civil rights movement uh, didn't ask, uh, you know, are you uh, pre-millennial or post-millennial? Uh, it's like, are you for the, uh, do you believe that God made uh, all men, as they would have said, free? 
And so we see those kinds of uh, movements. And I think the pragmatic experiential is not only the thing that unites um, the high tradition and the uh, uh, lower tradition uh, of uh, reason and, and piety, but it also uh, is its own thing and continues to be. To, to build off that, uh, you speak of the civil rights movement in this pragmatic sense. Um, obviously, the greatest piece of literature produced in that time was The Letter from a Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King Jr., which if you read is full, even though he didn't have the books with him, full of citation to theologians right, and to, and to philosophers. Uh, could such... Uh, has has there been a even more, especially maybe after the religious right, as the decline of religious participation, even more of a aversion to theology, more embracement of pragmatism? I just couldn't imagine um, a major public figure, even if he was a minister, to write something as erudite as a letter from a Birmingham jail. Yeah, so so two things are at work, if if I may. One is uh, uh, King did a really good job of synthesizing what he read and showing how Augustine tells us an unjust law is, is no law at all. And in the first instance, he's speaking to other well-educated or seminary-educated uh, white moderates. Uh, but to your point, everybody else was able to listen in because they bought these books or they had to study them in college or or one of their church groups. It's hard to imagine, uh, you know, that happening today because we tend to read in ruts. Uh, there was in the 1950s, maybe for the last time or in the early 60s, a common culture where people had to uh, say what they thought of Fulton Sheen and Reinhold Niebuhr or and maybe even Dorothy Day, uh, Thomas Merton, uh, those sorts of common figures we don't have as much. Uh, maybe Margaret, maybe in literature, maybe Margaret Atwood gets us uh, close. Uh, I was thinking of Rick Warren. Yeah, uh, you know, Rick Warren's also a synthesizer. One of the things I like about, uh, uh, I find interesting about, um, you know, his his uh, great book, the was Purpose Driven Life. Yes. Is, he quotes like 23 different versions of the Bible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, that, that was back in the three channel days. Right. Um, so it, it, there was much more of a shared culture and entertainment culture as well as that. I mean, just remember, I mean, some of these religious figures were popular cultural figures. Reinhold Niebuhr was on the cover of time magazine. So, As was Paul Tillich. I couldn't imagine Paul Tillich yeah. being on a cover of any magazine today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, just thinking about it that way. I mean, and just Billy Graham. I mean, how, I mean, think about Billy Graham's reach. So, yeah, it was just a different time, different set of circumstances and uh, different communication and technology apparatus around it. And, and to underline that for a moment, the uh, uh, we were a deeply segregated country that nevertheless read the same books and could have a conversation. And now we're a more diverse and in many ways more accepting country, uh, but we don't have the same foundation to uh, draw upon to have a conversation. Thank Things you. Change. One of the, many of the figures that we've just mentioned in this past conversation have been Protestant, Martin Luther King, Billy Graham, Paul Tillich. The largest single denomination in the United States has been, for the past, I believe, 100 years, over Roman Catholicism. And one fact that I always find very interesting is that there have been more Unitarian presidents than Roman Catholic, three to two. So, so James, I'll start with you first, and then Jim. What, why has Roman Catholicism proven to be such a polarizing religion, especially uh, a religion that suffered deep nativist prejudice in the leading up to the American Civil War. Well, that's because anti-Catholicism has become was early on so prominent in American history. I mean, reaching back to the Reformation, um, when the Protestants separated out from the Western Catholic Church, 
anti-Catholicism started and then it built up steam, of course, in England. I mean, with, with Henry VIII separating from the Pope uh, for reasons that we all know, uh, and then casting along in different ways along Calvinist directions uh, with the Anglican Church and and prominently in the Puritans as they came here. And a lot of English people who came here brought anti-Catholicism with them. So anti-Catholicism was considered the gospel. Um, this was the case in the revolution. This was the case all through the 19th century. So there was this strong strain of anti-Catholic rhetoric, even in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect. I mean, you would find people who were progressive in other ways, um, in progressive and some social issues, progressive theologically, yet still had that strain of anti-Catholicism. So that was just a part of the cultural DNA, a religious DNA that came along with this mainline Protestant push. And it was just difficult to overcome. And we all know that, you know, with uh, with President Kennedy, it was a big issue uh, running for president. So um, not so much anymore, as we know, but that just is part of that the past circumstances. Was there hope amongst the founders, maybe not hope, but desire to ban Roman Catholics from political participation? Uh, I can't think of a founder who, who uh, was for banning Catholic participation. I just ran across a fact yesterday, uh, last week that uh, uh, New Hampshire until 1877, though barred, any but Protestants from holding public office and Unitarians were considered Protestant for their purposes. Uh, And and so there has been this distrust and, and what, um, what broke that log jam as much as anything was the contribution of a a Jesuit, John Courtney Murray uh, to the uh, Vatican II uh, uh, documents on uh, the relationships between church and state because the Europe, the European uh, Catholicism had had bad experiences ever since the French Revolution with um, uh, secularism and there being a uh, uh, a non-unitary state, either balkanized, as in in uh, Great Britain and in, in America, or uh, uh, in the case of France and later Mexico. Um, you know, an anti-clerical state where Catholics really weren't welcome. Uh, it took some doing, and and it was Murray who was able to convince uh, the people uh, at the Second Vatican Council uh, that the Church could thrive under a diverse um, uh, social regimen, political regimen, where no church was favored and no church was discriminated against. And that's the settlement of, of Vatican II, which, uh, you know, makes it possible, along with uh, JFK's uh, Houston ministerial speech, uh, uh, for Catholics to really uh, rise to the position where, uh, you know, they have a majority of the uh, uh, U.S. Supreme Court seats. You know, an int- a really interesting turn of affairs that might be more significant um, as as a place counter than just the number of presidents who've been Catholic. I, I, that's completely true. Um, I, I'm reminded of a quote by, of all people, Pat Buchanan, who said that this was 10 years ago, who said that it's it's ridiculous that a country with a majority Protestant at that time has no Protestants on the Supreme Court. At that time, it was all Jews and, and Catholics. So these two marginalized religious groups had had come extraordinarily far within the political system. But but they'd also uh, come to be trusted on yes. uh, issues, moral and legal, uh, under this umbrella of uh, uh, we'll be diverse and we won't favor what ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, James, uh, another part of this book that is this, uh, that, that, that you – you both emphasize his race and ethnic diversity. Obviously, the, the original sin in the United States was the continuation of, of slavery until the Civil War. 
how did the existence of slavery inform religion, especially in those first generations of the United States? Right. I mean, and, and this is one thing we wanted to bring out clearly because slavery has been such a formative influence and part of United States history, really at the center of United States history, uh, along with other other important factors. Slavery was a critical dilemma during the revolution. Um, it was something that uh, the founders wrestled with, although they tried not to do it publicly. Uh, it was the source of hypocrisy, of course, as, as we've understood with slaveholding founders throughout who constructed a nation that would make its peace with slavery um, that eventuated into the Civil War and then Reconstruction after that. So, of course, it would have to have religious influences there and in religious importance. So um, part of that has to do with missions. Um, there was great controversy over to what extent enslaved people could be evangelized and different religious traditions had different perspectives on that region of course is important with that here. I think we have to look at evangelicalism. Um, uh, professor Albert Rabiteau uh, in his incredibly important uh, text slave religion examines how uh, evangelicalism did something that other religious traditions could not do, and that was effectively evangelize enslaved people, uh, showing how that happened and, and, and why it happened. So the majority of enslaved people and then free African Americans uh, in the mid, by the mid-19th century who were Christians were either Baptist or Methodist. Uh, so it affected the growth of, of evangelicalism. It affected the character of evangelicalism in doing that and also brought the dilemma of slavery to a point uh, that it had not, uh, that probably wouldn't have gotten to if not for the religious influences. I've got to remember that, um, you know, about a decade before the Civil War, a little over 1844 or 45, both the Methodists and the Baptists split denominationally along regional lines over slavery. Uh, and that happened because of the pressure of the issue and because of so many religious people on both sides of the issue. Also Presbyterians as well who, who split. From yeah, the, it's a little more complicated the, in the Presbyterian side, but still slavery is very much a part of that split too. James, what are some ind- indications of pre-Civil War antebellum black religion that still exists today? Yeah, so... Um, Lots. I mean, um, thinking about, uh, for instance, even denominationally, the uh, the AME Church. Uh, one of the more important people that we don't necessarily hear about in religious history or even uh, just overall American history is Richard Allen, and we tried to bring up the importance of Richard Allen because Richard, because it's, just, it's interesting. Some of the people who were just huge in the 19th century, just everybody knew about today. Not not everybody knows about. Um, and one of those people, of course, was Richard Allen. Richard Allen's influence was incredible as not only a denomination builder, but overall as an advocate for social justice in the religious realm and as an evangelical. I mean, he clearly talks about Methodism and why Methodism was the right faith for him and the power of Methodism. Uh, our colleague, Dennis Dickerson, who's in the history department, uh, who's written a really fine book on, uh, to plug that on the history of the AME, um, says that Richard Allen was the quintessential Wesleyan. So um, Richard Allen, just building that denomination, that's just one of many examples of how structures were created that then had much influence. So, you know, the AME church then just, and that's just one example had a profound influence on the long civil rights movement. So, yeah, just lots of ways. Thank you. Jim, you mentioned in, especially in the chapter on Reconstruction, how important black benevolent and religious societies were uh, uh, in the face of increasing segregation and violence. Uh, What are some examples in which uh, these religions uh, not only what are examples of these religious and benevolent structures, but how do they help blacks uh, fight against, uh, uh, you know, as you say, there was a, at one point a nadir in black in black life in the United States. Yeah, 
And the Nader came after Reconstruction. I think we yes. follow uh, the line in the narrative uh, set by uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, that Reconstruction uh, actually was working and then it was uh, the rug ripped out or the, mm-hmm. uh, from the uh, foothold of uh, freed people. The, the fascinating thing, though, is that the church, uh, having the AME church moving back into the, uh, into the South uh, from where it had largely uh, gone, gone to the North because of uh, uh, inability to as- assemble, they were there right away after the Civil War, even during the Civil War, and they were founding churches and teaching people to read. And there were some white uh, missionaries who who were part of the first generation, but very soon, in the first dozen years or so, most of the 2,000 schools that are founded by Methodists and Baptists uh, are black-led schools. And so the the church became... um, uh, an antidote to that problem that uh, Christian evangelicals and other Christians uh, might love their neighbors but not think that they're they're equals. And in the separate churches that that uh, became separate uh, uh, both out of exclusion and out of a desire for dignity, uh, you got within uh, within less than thirty years going from. Uh, less than one in 10 people being able to read to over 90% of the black population uh, able to read. It's an amazing uh, story of uh, what used to be called race uplift. And I think it's a good term because it's exactly uh, what black uh, people did for, for themselves under the auspices of the church. Why the church? Well, you didn't have to get elected. Uh, by the general population. You didn't have to get selected. Uh, in the church, you are somebody just because you're in in your church. And black ministers also um, had a public role that they could exercise right up through the civil rights movement. Uh, you see ministers in the vanguard. Why? Who's paying their salary? There's, there's no... Uh, white boss or power structure that can tell them not to do what they believe themselves to be called to do and their community supports them to do. So that, that's an important part of the story. We wanted to uh, uh, put more in the more forward and not just uh, treat it like in the civil rights movement, uh, but it's a continuous drumbeat, if you will, throughout uh, this particular book. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off is is this desire for freedom for a desire to not be uh, a, a char or should i say ordered around by a white boss or a white denominational leader the reason why blacks have primarily uh even though you mentioned james about yes there was that original evangelical push but it seems that the major black denominations in this country with the exception of the methodist ones are Baptist and Pentecostal congregationalist polities, right? It has, has this desire for, for freedom in, one, in one's own participation of worship, the reason blacks have more gravitated towards congregational polities? Perhaps so. I mean, the congregational polity in its, 
its jealousy and protection of local church autonomy has certainly had an influence. There's no question about that for sure. And of course, in many cases, the the church community was the only community in which African-Americans could have a say and have a voice uh, like uh, like uh, like whites were able to have in other communities. So that certainly has something to do with it uh, in the South, specifically in the ways in which some, the different Baptist churches were able to come up, starting out with uh, the invisible institution and then moving out more in the public sphere. So for sure, that's the case. I mean, there, and there are a lot of contributions to that. I mean, even though they're uh, Baptists and their local church autonomy churches, they share a lot with the Methodists. I mean, and Methodists are just, you know, they're just a strange kind of hybrid because Methodists, although they're hierarchical, they also had a very strong denom- the democratic thrust in their religious ethos and in the ways in which they voted and all of that. So um, they had a lot in common with the local church autonomy, the uh, Baptists, and then later Pentecostal. And of course, Pentecostalism eventuates out of Methodism. I mean, Methodism kind of gets the holiness movement rolling, and then it moves on into Pentecostalism. So that's one of the things I think we're able to bring out in the book by focusing on the historical narrative, um, by not like having such firm boundaries around talking about, well, we're talking about the Baptists now, we're talking about the Methodists now, we're talking about Pentecostals now. We're able to kind of weave it all in to the historical narrative and show how there, how these boundaries were more porous than normally we might think. So uh, we've been talking a lot about Christians, and uh, I'll, I, I won't embrace the prejudice. I'll say, yeah, Catholics as well, Protestants and Catholics. Um, yet America has always been home to a variety of new religious movements, movements that not only break the bounds of Orthodox Christianity, but even go beyond Christianity. So I'll start with you, James, first. Before 1865, what were some of the the major non-Christian or heterodox Christian uh, religions that were popping up in the United States? Well, we have to talk about the Latter-day Saints. I mean, the Latter-day Saints, just an amazingly interesting religious movement. Um, They... They kind of came out of that burned over district, that burned over area that had been so saturated with evangelical preaching and revivalism. And a lot of different new religious movements were emerging out of that context for various reasons. They also caught the wave of um, the new nation, the the westward movement that the white uh, white Americans were were on. And um, they brought together so many different diverse religious components from other traditions. Um, the Latter-day Saints, it's its just an amazing uh, synthesis that came around through um, Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints as they grew. They, they seemed to answer all of the questions that so many religions had, one of the issue being denominational competition. They were claiming that they were basically the successors of of Christianity and they were the true Christians and, and all other revival rivals were not uh, up to par. So uh, they're one for sure. There were a lot of others that just did not gather the numbers uh, that the Latter-day Saints did. And it's really uh, just a phenomenal story of why some groups gathered more numbers than others did. Um, and uh, one of the things we try to do is to bring out some of those different movements um, and how they fit into the larger story. And you're always, you're always in a dilemma of trying to figure out, okay, how much time do we give to each religious movement? Cause you can't give equal time to every single movement and you have to make hard decisions about which movements you're going to cover and how and why and where. Uh, and I think we try to do that again through this historical narrative flow and, and bring them all together in that. Uh, be- Jim, before you, before you, you answer, I want to, ask you one thing, James. Latter-day Saints Mormonism is, of the past especially 50 years, the fastest growing religion in the world in terms of percentage. And and you speak about, you know, that, that the Mormonism, by deviating itself, claimed as the, you know, 
successor to apostolic Christianity, right? And it, it resolved all of these major theological disputes with this new scripture, this Book of Mormon. Where does that come from? Where, where does the Book of Mormon come from? Well, if I could answer that question, um, I could <laughs> uh, write a really good book. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's mysterious. I mean, in a sense, I mean, it's um, a lot's been written on this. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's published in 1830, right? Um, and Joseph Smith publishes it. I mean, there's this whole narrative around it. Um, there are a lot of, there's a lot of controversy around it from the beginning. And Joseph Smith describes uh, a revelatory experience of translating the golden plates that were revealed to him. So there's just, there's revelation there. I mean, and it's, um, and it, it it's, it's got a fascinating tie-in to Christianity because Christianity is, of course, about revelation. But this promises a new scripture, in new scriptures, and continuing revelation. Whereas traditionally Christians had closed the canon, you know, and and uh, it opened the canon back up, and 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 so doing responded to new situations. Also, it talks about an appearance of Jesus uh, Christ um, in the Americas. So it's. Just fascinating in terms of uh, where it came from, how it came about, and all of that. A lot of it's kind of shrouded in mystery, as a lot of revelation is. Um, um, there are just a lot of great books on it, and and uh, scholars have dealt with it, and historians have tried to deal with it in various ways. But again, you know, this is one of those uh, ways in which history always have, has some mystery to it. It's not always uh, so clear exactly what happened when. Right. Thank you, James. So, Jim, after 1865, the United States experiences massive amounts of immigration uh, before 1924 and then after 1965 from places where immigrants did not originally come from before the Civil War. You know, rising amounts of Eastern European uh, immigrants, East Asian uh, after 1965, Middle Eastern and African. Uh, what are some of what, what religions not only came to the United States through immigration, but what kind of new religions, much like LDS, uh, were formed in this time? Sure. I, I think I would uh, probably start uh, by saying the thing that was uh, most, the two things that were most new in the late 19th century after the Civil War were uh, an interest into uh, an interest in science and new disciplines, electricity, magnetism, photography, and and bringing to them old questions like um, uh, what is a what is a spirit? Is it ectoplasm, which isn't a thing; it's a made up uh, thing? Uh, can can we see uh, ghosts? Can I talk to my uh, relatives that I lost? Uh, in the Civil War, um, these kinds of questions derive a lot of the new religions, uh, and and uh, people are interested in healing, but medicine isn't yet so good uh, as to provide all the answers. So, uh, so Christian science, uh, seances, and spiritualism are really big in this era. Thought uh, cures where you can use the power of the mind and concentrate the mind to effect a cure uh, becomes part of the uh, new religious makeup and uh, creates a whole bunch of groups that continue to this day, mostly small. uh, But, but once a religious idea is on the plate, it never leaves. Secondly, and relatedly uh, is an interest in Eastern uh, religions, uh, and in the other religion that wasn't uh, here already um, in large numbers, Islam, and for that matter, uh, Judaism. People become interested in the other world religions, and most of the people uh, throughout American history who want to be Buddhists are, are native-born uh, Americans, not East Asians. Uh, this happens as early as in 1893 with the uh, World Parliament of Religions. It continues down to this day uh, where a substantial number of uh, uh, American Buddhists uh, are uh, ethnically and, and by birth Jews. 
why is that? It's because in America, you can look over your shoulder and say, I like that part of that religion uh, more than the one my parents raised me in, or, or, uh, or I love this text, I'm going to be this. And it's, it's sometimes portrayed as a certain kind of Sheilaism, a cafeteria choice, I believe in me. Uh, I don't think it's that so much as uh, some eclectic uh, choices that, that are available in modernity with science, with diversity, with having these uh, new neighbors. Uh, and I haven't mentioned, you know, the Eastern Orthodox who really come uh, in uh, quite a quite a few different uh, uh, t- old world traditions over in this period. So uh, by the early 20th century, uh, America is much more uh, religiously diverse in terms of options, and then in terms of the people who were born into those options. And by the end of the 20th century, say with orthodoxy again. Um, people who were born into something else and have chosen the, this old world uh, tradition. So that like half of all uh, Greek Orthodox aren't Greek now. It's, it's their choice of a, um, of a more traditional uh, liturgical uh, uh, spirituality that makes sense for them. Yes, I have a Cypriot friend, a very good Cypriot friend, who um, finds a continual frustration in these uh, non-Greek immigrants. He doesn't come from a, a provincial sense, but just this, you know, they uh, they have a kind of exuberance for Greek Orthodoxy that none of the original ethnically Greek people exhibit. Um, and also with the with Buddhists as well, I, I I did not meet an Asian Buddhist in the United States until I was in college. It was all white, uh, maybe um, Latino or black, you know, kind of people who read your DJ, uh, DT Suzuki's or Alan Watts, um, who himself was an Episcopal priest. So a penultimate question as we approach the hour uh, before we conclude is the role of women, another important but frequently marginalized group. James, who are some of the major female participants in the story of American religion before the Civil War? Yeah, I mean, so women are most prominent in American religious history. If we want to count adherents, people who are actually in the pews, actually in the churches, women have almost always dominated. Women though have almost always been neglected in leadership positions. So women aren't the ones because of the patriarchal culture that existed in the misogynistic uh, presumptions of society haven't been the ones doing a lot of the writing. Um, so haven't left a lot of the evidence uh, that historians tend to rely on in terms of written records. So part of what we do as historians is we try to bring out uh, that prominent role of women as much as we can. Um, and we do that with various women in the text. I mean, uh, Phoebe Palmer is huge uh, as a Methodist influence. Phoebe Palmer, uh, who basically took an understanding of sanctification that had been inherited from Wesley uh, and then recrafted through Finney and some others and totally turned it on turned it on its head, set it in a new frame, changed the understanding of it in a way that really contributed very much to holiness movements. And then the Pentecostal movement, we can see the handprints of Phoebe Palmer all over that understanding of sanctification in what she called the altar theology. Um, Jarena Lee was, um, a preacher in an African-American preacher in the early 19th century who traveled extensively uh, as a Methodist and um, published her, basically her story uh, that focuses specifically on the call to preaching. Uh, What does it mean to be called? uh, And what is that vocational a discernment. How does that look in a spiritual context as she brought it out? Uh, Jarena Lee, very influential, very important uh, to consider, you know, various other women across time. I and mean, people talk about, um, you know, Anne Hutchinson and the antinomian 
movement and New England Puritanism as being important. Um, there are various others too. Francis Willard. I mean, uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. I don't really know of any movement uh, that was more both culturally, politically, and religiously important than the women's Christian temperance movement, both for the buildup of obviously temperance and um, suffrage. You know, it's, it's kind of set in motion those patterns. So yeah, it's it's one of the key themes of the story because women did, as Ann Browdy published in a very important article several years ago, women's history is uh, American religious history. So Jim, how, how have women asserted themselves in American religiosity after the Civil War? You mentioned spiritualism, theosophy, Christian science, which were all female-led. But in, in, in traditional Christian and non-Christian denominations, how did women um, assert themselves? So as, as I think about it, I, you know, I think the... Uh, <coughs> the long shadow of misogyny... Um, and you know what? What can girls do? Uh, is is been a uh, continuing theme, but with the uh, late nineteenth and uh, down to the twenty first century, uh, the new ecclesiastical forms that we talked about earlier, particularly Pentecostalism and and uh, congregationally driven uh, uh, pieties, and even entrepreneurial. Uh, kinds of uh, leadership have given us uh, really significant leaders. Amy Simple McPherson, you know, who who uh, takes over the radio waves and broadcasts on a different channel every every week until J. Edgar Hoover says, you know, the people will be able to find you if you just stick to one uh, channel. She, amazing Pentecostal uh, leader, uh, Catherine Kuhlman, a traveling evangelist and healer. Uh, big uh, 60s and 70s and, and beyond. Um, somebody more entrepreneurial like uh, Gwen Shamblin Laura uh, with, you know, a diet down kind of uh, a ministry that combines uh, 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 non-Trinitarian theology with uh, Pentecostal practice in an old-fashioned looking church that, uh, you know, could have been plucked right out of uh, you know, 18th century Charleston in terms of its looks and then branches out to 300 uh, different locations. Uh, all of those are women-led uh, kinds of things, and they didn't ask permission from a traditional denomination. Although the, the traditional denominations did uh, produce a lot of popular um, uh, folks, so one thinks of uh, coming out of the Presbyterians and then going, you know, being everybody's uh, favorite lay theologian, Rachel Held Evans uh, in the 21st century, uh, is, the, is the kind of person uh, who just by blogging in the 21st century can say that can uh, provide a reading of religion that people uh, will quickly start uh clipping and forwarding to each other. And or the greatest, the, the there greatest. There are a bunch of those folks right right now who, again, uh, are speaking kind of on their own authority on the reading of, of uh, Scripture about uh, life and uh, church and Scripture and whatever else. I was, I was about to say, I was thinking probably the most um, preeminent novelist in the United States is Marion Robinson. I was going to mention who is who is yeah. probably you know and and probably more theologically adept than a lot of uh, people who come out of PhD programs. Um, although she does have a PhD from University of Washington, but not in theology. Um, another figure that I was thinking of, which would have been I think unheard of fifty years ago, was Paula White, who was one of Donald Trump's main spiritual advisors during his presidency. Yeah. Well. This has been a fantastic discussion. I think we have covered uh, all of the ground, uh, with, but there's so much more in this, this uh, erudite and detailed uh, bottom-up approach uh, text that I recommend all read. Uh, 
one, I think last, and you can answer this as quickly as you'd like. One, I think, uh, question that's, that's been on my, my mind recently is even though this text has a, a appropriate bottom up social history, history focus, presidents, as has been mentioned, uh, are important communicators of religious ideas in the United States. And we've spoken uh, a lot about the contrast between uh, theologically educated and more spiritually uh, popularly educated. And, and James and Jim, you can answer this as, as quickly as you like. Who is the most theologically adept, theologically uh, sophisticated president, United States president that we've had? I'm going to go with Abraham Lincoln on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that Lincoln... And I'm writing a book right now on the Lincoln assassination. So I've been reading a lot more about Lincoln. Lincoln, like other presidents, knew his audience um, in a sense. And uh, he was uh, very biblically articulate, knew a lot about the Bible um, and knew a lot about uh, theological ideas. He was very in tune with ideas like providence. And yet he never joined a church. Um his statements, especially in public speeches like the second inaugural address, have been considered religious classics uh, because he refused to say that God um, is on my side. He he was always uh, the one who said we you know we wanted to need to be on we need to be on God's side in this thing. He also was very theologically astute in talking about slavery and and the sin of slavery and its repercussions. Um, so, uh, interestingly enough, Mark Knoll, when he wrote his theology in America book, um, said, uh, theology, it was called America's God from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln. So he ended up with Abraham Lincoln, uh, because of his, what he saw as his theological, uh, wisdom there. Professor Byrd is right about Lincoln. I will not argue that point, but let me give you a couple of uh, others from the uh, uh, Democratic Party uh, that may be a surprise. The first may not be. Uh, Barack Obama, by uh, channeling Lincoln and Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, said some uh, fairly profound things for a a president and uh, organized his, his life accordingly in terms of even some things uh, that that uh, he had the power to do but didn't do because he thought it would be wrong, uh, going into Syria, for example. Uh, but here's, here's the real dark horse. It's FDR. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, was uh, a pretty spiritual guy in a kind of old-fashioned uh, boys, uh, New England boys' school kind of piety. He'd learned from uh, his headmaster, how to think about life. Uh, his dad died young. He was a, a you know, stand, standard uh, but devout Episcopalian uh, all his life. And the thing that I would point out is he he wrote this beautiful prayer all by himself to be read um, on on the ships uh, of of the D Day invasion. And every every captain or every commander of uh, any one of these vessels read it over the loudspeaker. And uh, I would challenge your readers to uh, 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 hearers uh, of this podcast to go find that and and not to be impressed um, by the uh, you know decent piety of a guy who by that point was uh, you know quite uh, quite infirm. Uh, and had been in power for a long time. There's no cynicism in it. Thank you both for your answers. I think with me, it has to be Thomas Jefferson, right? And we may consider his writings to be philosophical, but it's all about God, right? And I think he wrote the most about the, the but I, I appreciate, yes, Lincoln, um, his second inaugural, and then FDR, who famously, when it was asked what his political beliefs were, he said, I'm a Christian and Democrat, and that is all. And so I, I appreciate that answer as well. Well, just quickly, um, before we end this, uh, first you, James, and then Jim, what are some future projects you're working on or have been published already? Okay, uh, I'm, I'm a one-at-a-time kind of person. So right now I'm uh, writing a book 
trying to finish up a manuscript for Oxford University Press that is basically a religious history of the Lincoln assassination. Ways in which uh, religious leaders or religious communities dealt with the assassination, the trauma, how religion played a role in dealing with it, and how it led to this idea of uh, Lincoln as this civil religious character that has been much appreciated in history. And like, as uh, uh, Jim points out, Barack Obama picked up on and others have as well. I'm writing about uh, uh, what I call the moral crisis in American Christianity, a a contemporary problem in which uh, every group seems to uh, not want to speak as Christians, but uh, speak politically uh, or or in terms of uh, other people's morality. And it's a kind of eclipse of uh, what is best about these respective uh, traditions, be they Catholic, Evangelical, Protestant, uh, uh, Pentecostal, Black Church. Uh, we're, we're in a, a bit of a problem uh, in terms of uh, the authority by which uh, religious people seek to interact uh, with others and even inside their own communities. Well, both of those works sound fascinating. I cannot wait to read them. Thank you both, James Bird and, and Jim Hudnut Boimler, for, for being on this podcast. Your contributions uh, have been extremely interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you have been listening to New Books and Religion, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson Reinhardt. We've been discussing the story of religion in America in Introduction published by Westminster John Knox Press, 2021. Thank you so much for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.